Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the evening of March 10, 1929, on New York City's East 132nd Street, something strange was brewing. It had just gone 10.30pm when Mrs. Smith was alerted to a short burst of screams coming from the laundrette next to her home. The laundrette, located at number 4 East 132nd Street, belonged to 30-year-old Isidore Fink, who also lived at the property. Smith summoned nearby police officer, Patrolman Cattenbone, who proceeded to investigate the situation. Unable to see anything through the windows, Cattenbone attempted to access the building, only to find the front door and all the windows locked from the inside. There was, however, a small transom window just above the door that appeared to be open, but it was far too small for the officer or Mrs. Smith to fit through. With Smith's help, Cattenbone asked a local child to climb inside the property and unlock the door for them. After squeezing through the window, the boy appeared moments later at the front door, having opened its heavy bolt lock from inside. Turning on the lights, the officer quickly found Fink lying on the floor in a pool of blood, having died from three gunshot wounds. Robbery was quickly ruled out as a motive, since no money or anything of any value was found to have been taken, and since the transom window was far too small for an adult to climb through, police concluded that Fink had shot himself. Only, no gun was ever found at the scene. The case, which was never satisfactorily resolved, was described by then-police commissioner Edward Mulrooney as an insoluble mystery. The death of Isidore Fink has since become known as one of the most compelling real-life examples of the fabled locked room mystery, a subgenre of crime fiction in which usually someone is murdered despite it appearing impossible for a perpetrator to have committed the crime without detection. 
the locked room mystery in literature is widely thought to have originated with Edgar Allan Poe's disturbing The Murder in Rue Morgue, published in 1848, with Soji Shimada's dark and puzzling Tokyo Zodiac murders considered to be one of the finest examples of the hugely popular genre. Though Isidore Fink's murder is one of the better-known real-world examples, only six years later, in a hotel in Kansas City, Missouri, another infamous locked room mystery would unfold, as compelling and strange as any fiction. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. The President Hotel at 1329 Baltimore Avenue in Kansas City is one of those grand old downtown hotels that speak of a bygone age of glitz and glamour. Built in 1925 in a bold Jacobean revival style, complete with ornate terracotta mouldings and its name in lights high up on the rooftop, it soon established itself as one of the more aspirational venues of its day. In 1928, the 15-floor hotel was selected for that year's Republican Party convention and its famously plush drum room lounge would go on to host Frank Sinatra and King of Swing Benny Goodman, among many other prestigious performers. And it was there, just after 1.20pm, on Wednesday, January 2nd, 1935, when Randolph Probst, one of the hotel's bellhops, was called over to reception to escort a new guest to his room. The man, neatly dressed in a black overcoat, had checked in under the name Roland T. Owen and claimed to have recently arrived from Los Angeles. As Probst was quick to note, despite booking the room for a number of days, the man carried no luggage with him. But perhaps even stranger was how particular he'd been about his choice of room insisting that it be at least several floors up and hidden from the street. The desk clerk decided that room number 1046 would be the perfect solution, being as it was an interior room located at the back of the hotel overlooking an inner court. Probst took the key and motioned for Mr Owen to follow him into the lift. Riding the car up together in silence, Probst couldn't help but notice the peculiar scar just above the man's left ear. It was some kind of burn that had left a bald patch of skin loosely covered by an otherwise thick head of dark brown hair. As a bellhop, it was almost impossible not to wonder about the secret lives of the many guests that came and went through the hotel doors, and for Probst, Mr Owen was already proving to be fertile ground for the imagination. This was only exacerbated moments later, when having let Mr. Owen into his room, the man asked Probs to wait by the door as he removed a hairbrush, comb and tube of toothpaste from his coat pocket and placed each item carefully on the small shelf above the sink. Then, turning to Probst, he announced he would be heading out for the afternoon. The pair then rode the elevator back to the first floor, with Owen handing him a small tip before heading on out of the hotel. It had just gone 7am on Friday, January 4th, two days after Owen had checked in, that Probst received an instruction from the hotel's telephone operator 
to make a quick check on his room as the phone appeared to have been left off the hook. Arriving at room 1046 moments later, Probst found a do not disturb sign hanging from the door handle. After knocking on the door, a muffled voice from inside instructed him to come in, but when he tried the handle, the door wouldn't budge, having been locked from the inside. Sorry sir, I think the door is locked, he said. After hearing someone inside saying, turn on the lights, Probst knocked again, but there was no further response. After knocking a few more times, the bellhop eventually gave up and yelled for Mr. Owen to put the phone back on the hook before heading back downstairs. An hour later, with the phone still off the hook, it fell this time to 25-year-old bellhop Harold Pike to make another check on the room. Pike found the door was once again locked, only this time it had been locked from the outside, suggesting the occupant had now left the room. After knocking and receiving no reply, Pike used his passkey to open the door and was immediately hit by a waft of warm, stale air. With the shades completely shut, it was hard at first to see anything when Pike was suddenly startled by the shape of someone lying on the bed. Sir, he called out as he stepped in a little further, pulling back suddenly in embarrassment at the sight of a naked Mr. Owen lying sprawled out and fast asleep on top of the bedsheets. Sir, Pike said again, but Owen would not be roused. Noticing then that the phone had been knocked off its stand in the corner of the room, Pike simply placed it back on its holder and left, locking the door behind him. Two hours later, the phone was once again off the hook. With Randolph Probst back on duty, he swiftly made his way to room 1046 to investigate again. Having got no reply after knocking on the door, Probst promptly opened it and was shocked to find a naked Owen a few feet inside the door, down on the floor on his knees and elbows, and holding his head in his hands. Probst switched on the light and recoiled in horror. The walls, ceiling, bathroom and bedsheets were covered in blood, and so too was the man's head. Here's something you don't know about me. I often have trouble sleeping, though I might get to sleep easily enough. Within a few hours, I could be wide awake, as my mind races through everything I didn't do, everything I still need to do, or even just to some embarrassing thing I said years ago that no one else even remembers. Relatable? Yeah, it sucks. Fortunately, I was introduced to Sunday Scaries, who make products specifically for overthinkers and night owls like me. CBD gummies to help you decompress, clear your head, and fall asleep, so you can actually wake up a fully functioning human being. I thought I was alone in dealing with everyday stress-related issues, but Sunday Scaries reminded me that I'm not. Whether it's a racing mind, lying awake at night, or feeling on the verge of a nervous breakdown, Sunday Scaries is the perfect tonic and I got you 25% off to prove it. Visit sundayscaries.com and use my promo code UNEXPLAINED for your discount. That's promo code UNEXPLAINED for 25% off at sundayscaries.com. Please note Sunday Scaries should not be used if you're pregnant or nursing. Consult with a physician before use if you have a serious medical condition or use prescription medications. After running to get help, Probst returned with the hotel manager 
only to find Owen had by then collapsed, with his body blocking the door from the other side. With police arriving on the scene soon after, detectives Ira Johnson and William Edridge, along with Detective Sergeant Frank Howland and Dr. Harold Flanders, succeeded in barging their way into the room. They found Owen breathing raspily and lying face down in a small pool of blood, similar to how Probst had first found him. What Probst hadn't seen, however, was that Owen's neck, hands and feet had been tied together with cord. Having assumed the blood had come from the man's head wound, after cutting him free, Dr. Flanders was surprised to find a series of what appeared to be deep knife wounds on his chest, one of which Flanders' guest had punctured his lung, which explained his raspy breathing. There was bruising on his neck, too, from where someone had tried to strangle him. Then suddenly, as if roused from a deep sleep, Owen began to stir. Rising to his feet as the doctor helped him up, he stumbled into the bathroom, clearly unsure of where he was exactly. The detectives followed him inside and demanded to know what had happened. Who did this to you? they asked. Nobody, said Owen, groggily. Then how did you get hurt? I fell against the bathtub, replied the man. The detectives looked to each other in confusion. After asking if Owen had somehow done it all to himself, the man replied no, before toppling over and falling unconscious once more. Mr. Owen was rushed to hospital by ambulance, only to fall into a coma later that night, from which he would never recover, dying shortly after midnight later that evening. Oddly, despite Owen being completely naked, no shoes or clothes were found in his room, not even the ones he'd arrived in. The room had been almost completely stripped, with all the usual hotel supplies found to have been taken, including the room's towels. In the end, detectives found only a single unlit cigarette, as well as a hairpin and an unopened bottle of diluted sulfuric acid, perhaps used to treat mouth ulcers. Detectives also found two drinking glasses, with one left unused on the shelf above the sink, while the other was found in the sink, with a large chunk of glass missing from it. Four small fingerprints were also found on top of the telephone stand that did not belong to Owen or any of the hotel staff, leading detectives to conclude that, despite Owen's protestations, he'd almost certainly been murdered, or at the very least, had not acted alone. After placing a call to the Los Angeles Police Department to find the man's home address, the police turned their attention to anyone who'd come into contact with him over the last few days. Having left the hotel shortly after arriving on Wednesday, January the 2nd, hotel cleaner Mary Soptic found him back in his room when she went to clean it in the early afternoon. Mary cleaned the room as Owen sat on the bed under the dim light of a single lamp with the shades pulled tightly shut over the window. Mary was nervous at first to be in the room with him alone, but something about the man gave her reason to feel safe, despite having the physique of a boxer or wrestler perhaps. As he sat there alone in the dark, he looked, she thought, like a small wounded animal. And from the troubled look on his face, it was clear he was deeply preoccupied with something. 
As Mary continued to clean, Owen eventually stood up from the bed, pulled on his jacket and left the room, telling Mary on his way out to leave the door unlocked when she left because he was expecting company. After finishing up, Mary did as she was instructed. When Mary returned to the room four hours later to deliver clean towels, she found Owen once again inside, this time lying down on his bed. As she quietly put the towels away, she caught sight of a note on the desk, which read, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. The next morning, around 10.30am, Mary returned again to the room to clean it. Finding it locked from the outside, and getting no response when she knocked, Mary thought it safe to assume that the room was empty, so it was with some surprise when she opened the door to find Owen inside once again, sitting quietly in the dark. Owen motioned for her to continue with her duties when the phone rang suddenly. Owen hastily picked it up. Mary heard a muffled voice from the other end, then Owen replied, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I'm not hungry. I just had breakfast. Owen hung up the phone, then asked Mary if she looked after the entire floor. Yes, she replied, a little taken aback by the question. Owen also wanted to know if there were any permanent residents living at the hotel, then moaned a little about the prices at the nearby Muhlbach Hotel, where he'd stayed a few nights before. When Mary returned at four that afternoon, with clean towels for the room, she heard two men talking inside. This time when she knocked, she was met with a curt, Who is it? Laundry, she'd replied. We don't want any, came the rough reply. Other hotel guests were spoken to, including Jean Owen, no relation to the dead man, who was staying in room 1048 the night before the incident. Though she hadn't seen anyone coming in or out of room 1046 that night, she remembered hearing the voices of what she assumed to be men and women squabbling loudly with each other. Later that night, around 1.30am, elevator operator Charles Blocker took a woman up to the 10th floor. Blocker identified the woman, who was about 5 foot 6, with black hair and was dressed in a coat of black Hudson seal as a possible sex worker, who was a regular visitor to the hotel. After arriving at the 10th floor, the woman asked for directions to room 1026, then headed off down the corridor to find it. After returning to the ground floor, Blocker returned to the 10th floor minutes later to find the same woman waiting for him, having seemingly been stood up by whoever called her to the hotel. Wondering aloud if she'd perhaps got the room number wrong, the woman stayed for another 30 minutes before leaving the hotel. An hour later, the woman returned, this time in the company of a man in a brown hat and overcoat. Blocker took the couple to the ninth floor, then just over an hour later, the woman left the hotel once again, followed 15 minutes later by the man, who muttered something to the reception staff about not being able to sleep and that he was going out for a walk. With Mr. Owen having died in the early hours of Saturday morning, 
By the afternoon, detectives had made some headway in piecing together the events leading up to his death. But then came an unexpected call from the Los Angeles Police Department. They'd made inquiries into the man's address, only to find there wasn't one, simply because Roland T. Owen didn't exist. The name had been made up. If you love Unexplained and you're looking for another podcast to binge, let me tell you about Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. Do you believe in ghosts? How about Bigfoot? Do you think it's strange and fascinating that a four-year-old in Oklahoma could look at a black and white picture of a man from the 1930s and say, that was me before, and then provide actual, verifiable details of the man's life? If so, Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan is about to be your new favourite podcast. Daisy is a Tony Award-winning actor, writer and true crime fanatic, but she's also a sceptic. Each week she looks at real stories of hauntings, disappearances, UFO encounters, the Bermuda Triangle, near-death experiences, and anything else that feels just beyond what we can easily make sense of. She is your guide into the inexplicable details of these stories. But she's also like, show me the receipts. So if you want to dive further into the unexplained, check out Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan. Find Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan wherever you get your podcasts. On Saturday evening, front-page articles in the Kansas City Star and the Kansas City Journal-Post encouraged anyone to get in touch with police who might be able to identify the man. Members of the public were also encouraged to go down to Melody McGilly Funeral Home on Linwood and Main, where the man's body was being kept, to identify it for themselves. One man, Robert Lane, who visited the body the following day, recognised the man as the same individual he'd given a lift to on Thursday night, the night before the man died. Lane had first seen him, in some distress, running down 13th Street, a few minutes' walk from the President Hotel, bleeding on his arm and wearing only an undershirt on his top half, despite the freezing cold weather. When Lane pulled over to see if the man was okay, he asked if Lane could take him to the nearest taxi rank. After agreeing to help, Lane heard the man saying, I'll kill that son of a bitch tomorrow, as he jumped into the back of his car. He dropped him off at the next junction, where the man promptly found a cab and drove off into the night. As many as 50 to 300 people are said to have viewed the body, with many more calling in to inquire if it was a missing loved one or family member, sometimes sending pictures to back up their requests. However, none were able to successfully identify the deceased. Efforts to locate the mysterious Don were also made, with some wondering if the woman in the Hudson Seal coat and her companion in the brown hat had anything to do with it, but nothing was ever found of the pair. Inquiries were also made at the Muleback Hotel, where the man was thought to have stayed shortly before arriving at the President Hotel. Staff identified the man as the guest known to them as Eugene K. Scott, who also claimed to have arrived from L.A., although once again, the LAPD could find no record of such a person. After further investigations, the man was also found to have stayed at the city's St. Regis Hotel, this time checking in 
under the name Duncan Ogletree, where he shared his room with another guest named Donald Kelso. Perhaps this man was their Don, thought police. However, despite continued efforts to locate the man and countless more failed attempts to identify the body, the case eventually went cold. On Sunday, March 3rd, it was announced in the Kansas City Journal-Post that the unidentified man would be buried the next day in the potter's field, or a pauper's grave as it is sometimes known, an area reserved for the unknown and unclaimed. Later that afternoon, however, a call was received at the Melody McGilly Funeral Home. The caller, a woman who didn't leave her name, asked only that they hold off on the burial to give her time to find some money to pay for it. Three weeks later, an envelope stuffed with cash arrived at the funeral home with a note to use the money for the unknown man. Payments were also made to a local flower company for the purchase of 13 roses to be placed on the man's grave alongside a card that read simply, Love Forever, Louise. A few days later, at the Memorial Park Cemetery in Kansas City, as the Reverend conducted the service for the unidentified man, some police detectives gathered as a sign of respect, but also in the hope that the mysterious Louise might make an appearance. But nobody came. In early autumn 1936, in Birmingham, Alabama, Ruby Ogletree had spent the best part of a year agonising about the whereabouts of her 17-year-old son, Artemis. Back in April of 1934, Artemis decided he wanted to see more of America and set out to hitchhike to California. Ruby missed her son greatly, but gained solace from the frequent letters he would write to her, informing her of his latest adventures. By spring the following year, however, things had taken a peculiar turn. Artemis's letters, which had once been free-flowing, handwritten and upbeat accounts of his travels, had suddenly become typewritten and strangely curt, often using slang that sounded very unlike her son. In one letter, the apparent Artemis declared he was travelling to Chicago to enrol in business school, while another, soon after, said he was in fact going to visit Europe and was scheduled to leave on a boat from New York imminently. But by far the strangest communication came a few months later in August of 1935 when Ruby received a phone call from a man named Jordan who said he was calling from Memphis, Tennessee. The man, who spoke with great speed and energy, was ringing to let her know that Artemis was by then in Cairo in Egypt, having married and settled down with a wealthy woman he'd met there. Jordan also explained that her son, had saved his life in a fight, but had lost his thumb in the process, and so would be unable to write to her any time soon. Realising that something was up, a confused and distressed Ruby wrote to J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI to look into the matter. She also wrote to the American consulate in Cairo, in the hope that they might be able to help track her son down, but nothing came of it. A year later, having heard nothing more of her son, a friend of Ruby's arrived one morning at her house 
carrying an old issue of the American Weekly magazine. Handing it to Ruby, she said, I think there's something you should see. It was an article titled The Mystery of Room Number 1046, the story of the unidentified man who'd been found mortally wounded at the President Hotel. And right in the middle was a large photo of the man lying dead at the funeral home, with his unusual scar showing prominently on the side of his head. Ruby took the magazine from her friend and felt her legs buckle beneath her. The man, or as it turned out, more a boy, was unmistakably her son, Artemis. After the boy's identity was confirmed with Kansas City Police, further efforts were made to locate the mysterious Donald Kelso, but they were to no avail. In 1937, a man named Joseph Ogden was arrested for killing a roommate of his. Ogden was later found to sometimes go by the name of Donald Kelso. However, this was never investigated further in connection to the Ogletree case. Little more was heard of the story until around 2003, when writer John Horner, who was working at Kansas City Library at the time, took a phone call from someone who wanted to find out more about it. As Horner later detailed in a 2012 article he wrote about the case for the Kansas City Library, the caller was going through the belongings of an elderly person who'd recently died and had come across a box full of newspaper clippings about the incident. The caller also said that they'd found something in the box that was mentioned in one of the newspaper stories. Just what that item was, however, was never revealed. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are greatly appreciated. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets 
and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.